And we're going to continue our study of worship. And it's not just a study. It's because I believe that God is calling us, wooing us, drawing us. It's fine and it's wonderful to study subjects in the Bible. It increases in knowledge and understanding. But there's a time when God's, there's a dynamic in what God's doing. And God is speaking to this church. You see over in the book of Revelation where Jesus tells the Apostle John to write a letter to seven churches. At the end of each of those letters, he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to this church. Or the Spirit is speaking different things to different churches. So we can't compare what's going on here, what's going on in some other church, but God is speaking something to this church. God is speaking to us. We need ears to hear. John chapter 10, 4 Jesus here is meeting with this woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. We've talked about the background of this before. He's going from Jerusalem or from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, and he had to pass through, through, through Samaria, and he stops at this well because he's thirsty and they're hungry. And Jesus encounters this woman who's come out to draw water. Now, we know, we've talked about this before, that Jesus doesn't just have some happenstance encounter with somebody. It's not just, you know, this is not just a coincidence. This is something that there's, this is purposeful. There's a purpose to this meeting, just as there's a purpose to every time we meet with God. There's a purpose to this meeting. And He wants to bring something into her life. And she's coming, in her own understanding, she's coming to this well because she has a natural need. She needs water. And in that culture, at that time, in that place, this was the source of water, so they had to come out every day, maybe more than once a day, to draw water, and it would, that's what her goal was in coming. And as we've studied this, we've also looked at this from the point of view of every time we come to church, we come for some reason. And it can be different today as it was from last Sunday. You may be here because you have a great need in your life and you're hoping, and you may not even verbalize it, but you're hoping that just maybe God will meet that need or give you some answer. Some of you are coming because it's just an obligation and I'm going to feel better because I went to church today. We have all different kinds of reasons why we come, and what I want you to see is He met her where she was. You may be a teenager here today, and the only reason you're here today is because You'll get in trouble with your parents if you don't come. But understand, God will meet you where you are. You may have been in church for your most, most of your whole life and you're just kind of in a rut and you don't know why you come. You just come out of habit. God will meet you where you are. Wherever you are today, God wants to meet you where you are. He met this woman where he was, but if you'll allow him to meet you where you are, he will never leave you where you were. His goal is to bring her to another level, another level of relationship, another level of blessing, another level of life. And he says to her here in chapter 4, verse 10, he said, because she had no idea, she just meets this Jewish man, and he asks her for a drink of water, and she's astonished. She says, well, how come you being a Jew ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water? Because as I've explained before, Jews and Samaritans didn't talk to each other. And it also was not appropriate in those days for, for a, a man to talk to an unaccompanied woman. So for two reasons, it was strange to her that he spoke with her. And he answers her this way. Verse 10, Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. In other words, if you don't, because you don't know who it is you're meeting with, 
If you, let's put it another way. If you knew who it was that was here with you, you, it would change what your expectation is. It would change why you've come. It would change what you're looking for. If you knew who it was that you were sitting here talking with you, you would have asked of me because I have things to give to you that are better than this water. I have a living water. And he goes on to give her an idea of what that living water is like. He said, because if you would ask of me, I would give you a living water and it would become in you a source of water. It would become of you a well. Some translations say a fountain. It's a source of water springing up into everlasting life. In other words, you'd never thirst again. The inner longings of your life, the inner needs that you have to be made whole, to feel secure, to have a sense of security and well-being, you would never need to look anywhere else for that because it would spring up from within side of you. That's what I have to offer you. But you've got to realize who it is that's there with you before you can ask. So when we come to church on Sunday, who you're coming to meet with determines what you're open to receive and what you'll expect. So if you're coming to church to see your friends that you haven't seen since last week and your expectation is it'll warm me because I'll feel good because I got to see some people, then that's what you're going to get. But if you'll begin to realize as God is telling us, calling us, that we have an opportunity, and we looked at the opportunity of worship, that we have an opportunity to meet with the living God whose presence is absolute life and health and provision who once you get a taste of him, you get hooked on him, but it's the one thing you can get hooked on that you get addicted to that will always satisfy. There's no hangover to it. There's no price to pay to some guy on a street somewhere selling it out of a trunk or out of his suitcase or out of his pockets. It's a well of water. The source will be in you when you leave here and take it home with you. That's what he's offering to her. She has trouble understanding that. But he meets her where she is. And so he says to her, see, her response to this is, well, sir, give me this water. She said, you don't have anything to draw with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that water from? And she says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? See, she doesn't still know who she's talking to. And drank from himself as well as his sons, verse 13. Jesus answered and said, whoever drinks of this water is going to thirst again. In other words, whatever this world has to offer you, it's never going to satisfy. Whatever you're looking for when you come to church, if it's not me, it's never going to satisfy. What you got last week won't satisfy you this week unless what you got last week is him. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, notice whoever. Whoever. So it's not limited to this woman at the well. Whenever you see the word, the, 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 the pronoun whoever or whosoever, what that implies is the choice is up to me or you. It's offered to everybody, and whoever refers to whoever among us chooses to receive it. So this is not something he's offering to a select few. This is not something he's offering just to this woman. This is not something, listen to me, just offered to people at that time when he walked on the earth. This is not just being offered to ministers, to pastors and prophets and apostles and evangelists and teachers. This is not just being offered to those who are great and mighty men and women of God. It's to whoever. 
It's to whoever. Whenever you see whoever, whosoever, it means it's an open door. It's up to us whether we're one of those whosoever's or not. Whoever shall drink of this water that I shall give him, it shall become in him a well or a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. Now the woman says, she's lifted her eyes up. They're looking, she's realizing there's something here that's being offered. I don't yet understand, but she has enough awareness to know whatever it is I wanted. It sounds better than where I've been. And see, when we begin to respond to God's invitation, we don't have any idea what it really means. We, all we know is there's something in us that senses God's offering something to me that's better than what I have. And all we've got to do at that point is I want it, whatever it is. I don't need to understand it. I just want what you're offering. And now, remember Moses walking along and he saw the bush that was on fire? And Moses said to say, that was God's attracting his attention. But Moses had to say, I think I'll turn aside and see what this is. Then God spoke to him from the bush. It's a process of drawing us up further, drawing us closer, drawing us to where he's taking us. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst or have to come here anymore to draw. And notice what he does here. This is what we're going to talk about today. He says, so now he's got her smelling the bait, as we talked about a year or so ago. Now he's got her, her appetite's whetted. She's beginning to desire with this opportunity. Now notice what he, he starts talking about her. He says, go call your husband. Now what's that all about? Well, we're going to see in a second, because her answer is, I have no husband. And he said, you have said, well, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Notice he's not condemning her. Notice he's not judging her. What he's doing is he's calling her to be honest about what's going on in her life. What we're going to begin to talk about today, we've talked about the opportunity to worship. We've talked about the privilege of worship. That worship isn't something you can just saunter in and do the way you want to do. That though God's waiting for us, we have to come on His terms because of who He is. We sang today because of who you are. And it's because of who He is. Because otherwise we try to bring God down to our level and He won't come down to our level. So that means we have to make our own God at a lower level. Because He won't come down to that level. But if you'll worship Him and accept Him where He is, He'll bring you up to His level. And that's what He's doing here. So he says to her, he asks her, begins to ask her questions to examine her life. So we've talked about the opportunity to worship, we've talked about the privilege to worship. We're going to begin to talk today about the preparation for worship. Because we've seen you can't just walk in on your terms. I don't mean, you come in the way you are, but to truly experience his presence, something has to happen. And it's not on his end, it's on our end. And it begins by honesty about ourselves. We go further, we probably won't get there today, but he says the Father's longing for true worshipers. And a true worshiper is somebody who worships in spirit and in truth. Truth with ourselves, honesty with ourselves. We talked about in the Old Testament in Genesis 1 and 2, how what God's bringing us back really to where they were 
in those first two chapters, the paradise that he created, because they lived and walked in the presence of God, totally unaware of themselves, totally caught up in who he is, in his splendor and his glory, totally caught up in that, and they were so open and honest, they weren't even aware of the fact that they were naked. But in the next chapter, when they rebel against God, the let sin in, sin comes in because they became conscious of themselves in competition with God. And when they did that, they fell from His presence. And so worship is an effort to come back to that place that was originally created by God. That's why He longs to have restored what was there before in the very beginning. We saw last time that, that in the New Testament through the cross that we do have access back into that place. But we must never forget it's through the cross. It's not because I dress so well, because I smell so good, because I've been so faithful this week or last week. It's because of the cross I can come. But then there's the other extreme. We become so casual because of the cross that we forget that it was an incredible price that was paid for us to be able to come. And then we become so casual, we just take it for granted. So it's that balance, and we have talked about that last time, which is kind of a foundation for where we're going to begin to go today. So notice, in order to bring her to this place of worship, to bring her to this place of revel, greater revelation of who he is, in order to bring her to this place where he can give her this gift of everlasting life, he has to begin to deal with where she is and see if she'll be honest about it. So he doesn't say, look, you're living in sin, get it straight. He asks her a question. He says, or tells her to do something. You know, go, go call your husband. He's going to see whether she's going to be honest with him or not. Because she could have gone down, brought Bozo she was living with, <laughs> or whoever it was, brought him up and say, here he is. But he wanted to see if she would be honest with herself and with him. And she says, well, I have no husband. But she's honest, but she's not fully disclosing. That's what we are sometimes with God. You know, we'll say, yeah, I'm, you know, I know it's not right what I'm doing. And then stop there. And somehow think that because we've acknowledged it, it's taken care of. Because we've admitted, yeah, I know it's wrong, that now it's taken care of. That's not what repentance is. And so Jesus says to her, that's right. You've had five husbands. And the one you're now living with isn't your husband. And she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now she's beginning to get a greater understanding of who he is. He's not just a man sitting by a well making rash promises to her. He's now beginning to, she's, he's beginning to reveal himself in a supernatural way. This is a gift of the Spirit. This is called, if you go into 1 Corinthians 12, this is called a word of knowledge, which is a supernatural revelation of some existing fact that's, that's known not because you've gone and seen the information, but because God's Spirit has revealed it to you. And now she's beginning to get a revelation. Wait a minute, this guy's not just some guy telling me things. This is some kind of man of God that has some kind of connection with God, which now she's going to deal with him a little more now the way she would deal with God. But notice what he's doing here. Before he can begin to talk to her about worship, before he can begin to, to, to bring her to that place, he has to deal with what's going on in her life right now. And that's what we're going to begin to talk about, the preparation for worship. The pattern in the Bible 
Well, let's go to Leviticus 26. We've looked at this before. God talking to his people about their worship of him, their relationship with him. You shall not, verse 1, you shall not make idols for yourself, nor a carved image or a sacred pillar. You shall rear up for yourself, not to rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. Why? For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths, look at this, and reverence my sanctuary. Wherever I'm going to dwell, you are to reverence that. Why? For I am the Lord. Now we've looked over at verse 9 before and said, as a result of this, he says, and I will look, New King James says, favorably on you and make you fruitful. The, the root word there literally means to lean down towards you. And the Amplified, I believe, says that. So if we will have this reverence for God and His presence, then God is saying, I, wanna, I long for that. I long for you. If, you. if you create this atmosphere for me, I will lean down towards you. Not just my hand. I will lean down towards you. It means my favor will be on you. God shows up here in response to our openness and reverence for Him and begins to love on us, just imagine what's going to happen. I've known of stories of men that I've met that in revivals of old, one of them in particular, they had this kind of revival taking place where God's presence was in the building and the fire truck showed up one day at a service. And they came in and said, where's the fire? They said, there's no fire. Nobody pulled the fire alarm. And they went out and said, yeah, but there are flames coming out of the roof of the building. Hallelujah. This is the fire department showed up. I talked to the man that was the pastor of that church. Flames were coming off the roof of the building and it wasn't on fire. There was a bush that was burning and it wasn't consumed. This happened a generation ago. In another country, but it happened a generation ago. And I know there are other examples of that that maybe you've read from men and women of God from back in that generation. God wants to display Himself, not just to prove how great He is, He wants to love on you. Not just with warm, fuzzy feeling when you leave church, but with His tangible presence. When Moses was in his presence and came down off the mountain, they couldn't stand because the glory of God had embedded itself in his face and they had to cover him with a veil so that he could get things done. All right. So, and I will lean towards you. I will look favorably of them, make you fruitful, multiply you, confirm my covenant with you. Oh, but we missed some verses in between. Verse 2 says that you reverence my sanctuary... For I am the Lord. Verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season and the land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage. In other words, but this is only going to happen if you keep my commandments. 
We're talking about preparation now for worship. And the preparation isn't in the decor of the sanctuary. The preparation isn't in the color schemes. The preparation is in the heart of the worshipers. Because as I've shared with you, this room can be anything we decide to make it to be within its limits. It, can be a, it, it could be on Saturday night. It could be, well, it's not legal to do it here, but it could, it could be a nightclub. I had, a, I had a church before that was had one of the churches that had to rent a room. And the problem on Sunday morning was what went in that room Saturday night. <laughs> we had to get the demons out of there from all the stuff that had gone on the night before. So we could have a nightclub in here. We're not going to. It was not legal. You know, we could, because it's a building. So it's not what the building is that makes it. It's what we make it to be when we come in here. So it's our church, but this is a God's sanctuary. I know I'm His sanctuary. I know He lives in you. I, we're talking about a corporate worship. We're talking about when God's people come together to honor Him and to worship Him. And that is the purpose and their focus for coming. And so Moses is saying here in Leviticus, or God's speaking to Moses and saying, this is what I want. But to do this, you've got to be obeying my commandments. Preparation. And here's why. It just makes sense if you stop and think about it. It's because of who he is we must prepare to enter his presence. We've learned that God is a holy God. God is a pure God. God is the creator of everything. He's entitled to every bit of worship, every bit of praise we can give. He's entitled to it. But is that the attitude with which we come? We've learned that we can't just come to Him. We've seen this in prior weeks. We just can't come to Him on our terms and get His presence. The preparation is because we're coming to a holy God and we are an unholy people in ourselves. Now, not within Christ. Difference. I heard this from another teacher a long time ago here, actually. In the book of 1 Samuel, there's a story of a high priest named Eli. And he had not raised his sons correctly. And at that time, literally at the doorway of the temple, the priests were prostituting themselves with their bodies. There were prostitutes there. And there was all kinds of illicit relationships going on in the doorway of the temple and nothing happened from God. Go over to the book of Acts and you've got a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. They come into church and all they do is lie about the offering they made and drop dead on the spot. What's the difference? In the time of Elijah, of Eli, God's presence had left the temple. It was a building, and they had religious stuff going on there, but God wasn't there. But in the book of Acts, where we see all the miracles and the supernatural things taking place, God's presence was there. And when God's presence were there, unholy things 
were dealt with by being in the presence of God. And it wasn't even the temple. So God says in Leviticus, reverence my sanctuary, but you can't reverence my sanctuary and not keep my commandments. You can't reverence my sanctuary and not keep my commandments. Why? Because God's commandments are His words. And God and His words are one. Just like you and your words are one. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We'll put it this way. What we think of God's Word, what place God's Word has in our life, is the exact same place He has in our life. Because you can't separate Him from His Word. And see, we often judge where we are by how we feel. Oh, I love God. I felt goosebumps during praise and worship. But we go out into our life having no intention of carrying out... And I'm not talking to everybody, but I'm just talking to examine ourselves. Jesus examined this woman, had her examine ourselves. What is my attitude towards the Word? What is my attitude towards the Word? Because it's not what I think I think of Him. The proof is, what do I do with His Word? And so here God is saying to them, reverence my sanctuary. Keep my Sabbath holy. Why? For I am the Lord. Then He says later on, this is what I want to do. But in between, He says, you must keep my commandments. In other words, you can't reverence my sanctuary and not be keeping my commandments. Because then you're not reverencing my word. We want his presence. We like having his word because it's filled with promises. But it's also filled with requirements, commandments. And Christians of our day and age, we've become buffet Christians, smorgasbord Christians to some of you. You get in line and you go down and you pick what you want. We pick what looks good. I'll have a little bit of this. No, I don't want the Brussels sprouts. I'll have a little bit of the corn. I'll have this. And we pick and choose what we want as if it's available to us on that basis. That's coming to God on our terms. God's more like a father or mother. He says, this is what's good for you. It's what's on your plate. Eat it. <laughs> Really quiet in here this morning. <laughs> well, that's good. All right, let's go look at some examples quickly. Uh, we're not going to look at them uh, of, of the, the God's pattern of of preparation. We've spent time looking in um, uh, in Exodus 19, which is really kind of the basis of this whole study of worship, because what God's doing there, Moses. It says in Exodus 19:17 that Moses brought the people out to meet with their God. That's what God wants every time we come together as His people here. But we've mentioned this before, but remember that when God spoke to Moses on the mountain, 
He said, I want to meet with my people. I want to come down on this mountain. But here's what you need to do. You need to go tell them that and then take three days and have them consecrate themselves. And what he had them do is wash their clothes. Now, it's not because they were just dirty. He wanted them, their clothes represented their lives, to wash their lives, get themselves cleaned up. Well, I could preach on that one. Get themselves cleaned, because oh, I don't want to go there. <laughs> There's such a trend in the body of Christ today to just, you know, especially among the leaders, to come anyway, you know, well, we want to come everything, everything nice and casual. And there's a place for that sometimes. And there's some areas where, we, where I'm looking at that. But to me, Sunday morning, if we're going to come into the presence of God, it's not a legalistic requirement. The way I dress to me reflects what I think of the one I'm coming to meet with. If I were going to, into the Oval Office to meet the president, regardless of what I politically believe or not, my respect for the office, the person, and the, and, the, and, the, and the place, I would not come in dressed like I would in shorts if I were going to go to the beach. I would probably put my best dress on to come in there out of respect for where I was going. And I know as a child I was trained that, that the way you dress affects how you think of yourself. And it reflects what you think of what you're doing. And so, so I don't want to get off on that because I, I've got, I feel strongly about it. So, uh, where was I before I interrupted myself? <laughs> Washing clothes, thank you. So he had a, he, but the point is, they, they couldn't just, because God wanted them to come, they had to get some things right. In their case, it was their outer garments. Over in, uh, before then, back in Exodus, when Moses says, God has appeared to Moses and told him to go and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses goes back home to get his wife and his sons. And on the way, it says, God was met with him to kill him. Now, that can be a little hard to understand there. And the reason was, he hadn't circumcised his son under the Abrahamic covenant Every Jew born on their eighth day was to be circumcised as a sign of having the covenant with God that God had given them through Abraham. So when they failed to obey that requirement, they were walking outside the covenant. And before... Now, God didn't deal with him up until this point, but he's about to go step into a spiritual warfare. He's stepping into the completion of what he's called to do, or the beginning of what he's called to do. He's now going to be working for God, doing what God's called him to do. He's going to be engaging spiritual enemies. And God says, before you do that, you've got to get things right. And his wife was so mad at him, she took the foreskins and threw them at him and called him a... All kinds of things. Now they went, God brings them out of Egypt. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. While they're 40 years in the wilderness, the generation that grew up in Egypt dies off. And Joshua was preparing to bring them into the promised land. And the generation that grew up in the wilderness that had not come out had not been circumcised in the wilderness. So before they could enter into the promised land, God requires Joshua to go and have him circumcised. In other words, to get things right. God had a requirement, 
they hadn't kept the requirement. And now before they were going to do what they were called to do, they had to go back, face it, and get it right before they moved on. So preparation for God's visitation, preparation for anything God's going to do with you or through you, requires you to make sure you've got things right before Him. Right in what way? Well, today we're talking about according to His Word, what His Word says to do. Because the, what you, your response to His Word is exactly what your response to God is. Let me show you that. Let's go look... Let's go look at... Um, So we're going to begin to talk about different ways that we need to prepare. And the first one we're going to talk about is living in accordance with His Word, His commandments. We just saw in Leviticus 26. Now go with me to Isaiah 66. Remember in Leviticus 26, he says that you shall reverence my sanctuary. The emphasis is on my sanctuary. It's his. Look at this, verse 66, chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord God, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? In other words, what is it you can really do for me? Where is the place of my rest? That's what we're talking about. For all those things my hand has made. In other words, what can you do to impress me? What, you, what can you bring to me? Build me a big temple? What, what are you going to use to build it? Materials I made. You're going to provide a resting place for me? A dwell- no, is this building? What? <laughs> the, the resources, the materials and the money to pay for the materials and the work all came from Him. So we can't get too in awe of what God, you know, this is, we got work that needs to be done in here to be upgraded. And that's something we'll talk about later on. But I just came from, we just came from a sanctuary that's three years old. I mean, it's state of the art. It's beautiful. But we can't worship the sanctuary. Because how can the, and this is what happens to us. Sometimes, sometimes, often we allow the sanctuary to become more important to us than the one whose sanctuary it is. And that's what God's saying here. What are you going to build for me that's going to impress me? What is it you can give to me? Whatever you bring to me, give to me. I gave it to you. I made it. So it doesn't impress me. What is it he wants? It's not things. What is it he wants? What matters to him? What's valuable to him? For those things my hand has made... All these things exist, said the Lord, but there's on this one thing I look. This is what I want. This is what I long for. On him who is poor, that means humble, and of contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. In other words, my word has an authority in his life to the point that he would not dare violate it. Why? Because he reverences me and that it's my words. 
To me, one of the, 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 the most dramatic things about King David when he was sinned and then he was confronted with the sin, his first reaction was, I have sinned against my God. Not I've blown it, not I've made a terrible mistake, not, oh, what a terrible person I am, not, you know, what are people going to think of me, not I've done wrong to my, you know, to my wife. No, his first reaction was, I've sinned, I've hurt my God. Because that's the place his God had in his life. Now, obviously, he lost touch with that, or he wouldn't have sinned. But once he realized what he's done, his, his, his ever take a compass and you spin it around or something like that, and you place it down, the needle goes like that, but it's eventually going to come back to north, or magnet, whichever north it's set to. It's going to come to north. And that's what David was like. Things would happen in his life, he might get jostled, he might get weak, he might do something, but when things settled down, his compass came back to where his heart was. The interesting thing is his son Solomon, filled with greater knowledge, He's the wisest man that ever lived. That's what the Bible says about him. And he sinned also, and he never came back to that place. Because I believe the answer is what God says about David. He was a man after my own heart. Solomon had his wisdom, but David's heart was towards God. David's heart sought God first. Got off track, but his first reaction when he realized what he'd done was, "Ah, I've sinned against my God. So God is saying here, I'm not impressed what you do. I'm not impressed with what you can do. I'm not impressed with how much you have. I'm not impressed with what you do for me. Because the gifting and the grace and the ability that you have to do something for me, I gave it to you. So you have nothing to bring to me and give to me you didn't get from me. By the way, King David understood that. There's a prayer he has that goes back over all that. He says, here's what I do want. I want hearts that seek me that are humble and contrite and also that reverence my word to the point that they don't ever want to violate it. Does that mean we might? Sure. But that's not, I can't take it lightly when I do. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we begin to look at ourselves just the way Jesus had the woman look at herself is what place does God's Word have in my life? Not just do I like it, do I read it, but what place does it have in my life when it tells me what to do and what not to do, and I don't want to do that, or I want to do what it tells me not to do? This is Word something that is such an authority in my life that the idea of intentionally violating causes me to tremble. We don't like to talk about fear because you know, we've been delivered from fear, but there's a fear the Bible talks about. Paul says, I came to you in fear and trembling. In some circles, that's a bad confession. And there is a fear that we're delivered from. We're not to be bound up by fear of the devil and fear of what's going to happen. But there's a reverential fear of who God is. That's why he came down on the mountain to Israel that day. So they could see who he was. Remember? So they wouldn't sin. Sin is so rampant in the church, it's hard to tell the difference today between the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the world. Why? Why? Because we don't tremble at His Word. If we don't tremble at His Word, why do, the, why do we think the world... What are we a witness of? What are we a witness of? What are we a witness of? 
Let's go to John 14. I've just been reading these 14, 15, 16, and then sometimes 17. Because Jesus is talking about his relationship with his disciples. And then in 17, he makes clear, starting in verse 21, he's talking about us too. And the relationship, because these are really his last, his last staff meeting. He's meeting with them as a group for the last time before he goes to the cross. And so there's, this is filled with words of preparation, words that he knows they're going to need after he's no longer physically with them in the form that he had been. We're just looking at several things here because there's so much in here we could look at. Verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 12. Most assuredly I say to you, he that believes in me, the works that I do will he do also, and greater works will he do because I go to my Father. That's an astounding pro- promise. Most assuredly, or verily, verily. I think in the, in the Greek it says, amen. In other words, this is the truth. Now when Jesus, who is the truth also says, not only am I the truth, but I'm telling you I'm telling you the truth. You know he's emphasizing this. He who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also. What kind of works did he do? He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He has disciples do those things. So much of the church today doesn't believe in those things, but he said, the works that I do, shall we do, you do also, and greater works, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. Wow! There's that whatever again. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's like him saying to the woman at the well, if you knew who it was, you would ask of me. But there's another verse that follows it. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, what he's saying here is, it's it's so easy to tell somebody you love them. And we men are good at this. When we're dating or courting, I love you so dearly. I love you so dearly, you know? And we may be sincere in what we mean by it, but man, I got news for you. She's thinking something else. We're thinking the warm feeling I have when I see you and how excited I get when I see you. She's here in commitment. She's here in a diamond ring. (laughs) She's hearing I will forsake everyone else for you. That's what she's hearing love means. What What men often mean is, I just want you. I don't even know what that means. I just want you. (laughs) So Jesus here is making clear to them because with God we do the same thing. I love you. I love you, Lord. And we're sincere. It's not that we're trying to shuck and jive him and fool him, you know, and you know, no, we really, it's just the way men do with the women they're courting. Oh, Lord, I love you. I love you, Jesus. I love you. Now Jesus said, here's the evidence of, your, of what I mean by love is that you will do what I say. You will do what I say. 
If you really love me, the love I'm talking about is reflected in how you respond to what I say to do. So I can tell my wife all day, I love her, I love her, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then if I don't fulfill my commitments to her, if I don't honor the word I've given to her, then she eventually doesn't hear it. Oh yeah, he loves me. Yeah, okay, yeah, I know, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of you have been raised in homes where you were told you were loved, but what, the way you were treated was just the opposite. So you have a problem because when you hear God loves you, you interpret it the same way. Yeah, I know God loves me, but, you know, he's like my parents or my teachers or whatever it was. Yeah, you know. So we have to renew our mind that God really does keep his word. God really does mean what he says. So the point that he proved it before you were ever born. He backed it up before he made the promise to you. Let's go on and read some more things Jesus has to say here. Remember, remember as we go through this, remember, when Jesus was questioning this woman, he was not condemning her. He was trying to get her to face the truth about where she was so that he could now begin to bring her to another level. You cannot grow out of the level you are if you're not willing to face the truth about where you are. So God will confront you with the truth in one of all kinds of ways depending on what your bent is. And He, if He has to, will do it in dramatic style. But His motive is to get you to be honest with yourself first of all and then honest with Him about where you are about something and he always does that so that he can bring you to another level, set you free, whatever it may be. But he can only do that to the extent that you're willing to face the truth about yourself. Let's go over to verse 15. Uh, excuse me, yeah, 15, we did it there, okay. Let's go to verse 31. But that the world may know, look at this, that I love the Father as the Father gave me commandment, so I do also arise, let us go from here. So Jesus is saying this, I've just told you that the outward evidence of your real love for me is that you do what I say. In the same way, I've shown you that the outward evidence of my love for the Father is that I do what He says. So Jesus is teaching them something, confronting them with something that He says He's already doing. He's a living example of that. Because He was completely submitted to His Father's Word to the point that He says elsewhere earlier in John, I only do what I see my Father doing and I only say what I hear Him say. In other words, I only speak His word. I don't add any of my own. Add any of my own. I don't take what God said and then add my opinion. And He would have a good one. He was completely submitted under His Father's word because of the love and reverence He had for His Father. And He said, you can see my love for my Father by the fact that I always do what He says.
Uh, let's go over to... Um, you can also see that in chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now let's go back to uh, 14 and look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Now we're talking about God's presence coming. We're talking about God's presence coming, not just in us one at a time, one, one on one, but God's presence coming here when we come together corporately. And he's saying, look, in order for him to abide with us, he's connecting his abiding presence, he's connecting his tangible presence with our response to his word. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come and make our home or abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but my Father's who sent me. So God's presence is linked to our relationship and response and attitude and reverence for his word. Let's go to 1 John. Chapter 2. My little children, he's talking to believers, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's good news. We talked about that last week. He's our high priest. He himself is the propitiation of the payment for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So he's saying here, you cannot really know God or or your your response to his commandments is evidence of how much you know him. You can know about him or you can know him. Psalm 103, we've talked about this before, has this testimony. It says, the children of Israel knew his deeds. They knew what he did, but Moses knew his ways. Moses knew God's ways. Israel didn't know his ways. They just saw what he did or didn't do. And so much of the church knows something about God's deeds. Because most of the church is seeking God's deeds. But Moses sought him. And so Moses had a closer knowledge of God, a greater knowledge of who God is. He'd seen Him, at least the backside. And as a result, he knew things about God that the Israelites didn't know. And John is saying here that if you keep His commandments, if you say you know Him and you don't keep His commandments, you don't really know Him. You don't know who He is. Now notice verse 1 doesn't say you're perfect. 
Because he said, if you've sinned, you have an advocate with the Father. But the goal is that we not sin. Most of the church hasn't even started down that road. Verse 3, By this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. John said that, I didn't. That John did, not this John. And the truth is not in him. In other words, he's deceived. He's deceived about where he is. Now remember, Jesus confronted this woman with the truth about her life to give her the opportunity to be honest with herself and with him. And that's what preparation's about. It's God opening our eyes to see where we are so that we'll see whether we're willing to change or not, because if we don't change, He can't come. The truth is not in Him. In other words, He's deceived. I believe there are a lot of Christians who fall into that category. They go around talking about God did this, God said this, God said this, God said this. But you look at our, their lives. Are they keeping His word? Are they keeping His word? Because, you know, most of us have opinions about God. Most of us have ideas about God. But it's only from His word that we know about God. And then what He reveals of His presence to us. But that's, He's teaching us here, that can't happen if we have an attitude that's casual about His word. Oh yeah, I know it's what the word says, but. And that's really what I see more than anything. Not that people just out want to go out and just, you know, I don't care what the Word says. It's in essence, but that is what it is. I know the Word says that, but. It's as if God's Word is another view. I know that's, a, that's an opinion, that's one idea, but then there's this other idea. What that's really saying is, I know there's a God, but there's another one too. And isn't that what He said we can't do? There's one God. Let's go on and then we'll bring this to a close. So if we say that we know Him but don't keep His commandments, the truth's not in us. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected or completed in Him and matured in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to also walk just as He walked. And then he goes on and talks about the commandment. I want to end by bringing this down to, and we could talk about all kinds of things really for a whole year about what what does his word say. But I want to talk about one of the, because I've learned that primarily if, if Christians were willing to obey the hardest ones, then they're more likely to be obeying the other ones. And again, all I'm talking about right now is what is your attitude towards his word? Do you reverence, does that word an authority in your life? Here's an example. The commandment he goes on to say is, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Not as the world loves, but as I love that I lay my life down for you. He's commanded us to forgive one another. 
It's not just a good psychological principle to release the tension or the, or the, or the guilt. It's a commandment to forgive. And when someone's done something to hurt me, especially if it's an intentional hurt or a betrayal or something like that, I don't have a choice of how I'm going to respond to that. Well, I have two choices. I either obey His Word or I don't. I handle it my way. But you don't understand, Pastor, you know, I am Italian, Portuguese, you know, whatever. Now, we're just hot-blooded. I don't see a footnote in there. No, you're no longer Italian, Portuguese, hot-blooded. You're a Christian. You are in Christ. Now, I understand it can be a challenge, a struggle. But you, it's never going to be a struggle if we don't accept that's what i got to do. I have to forgive. Or His Word says, if you don't, He won't forgive you. What it says. We don't like to hear that. It's very popular now in certain parts of the body of Christ. We don't need to ask for forgiveness because we're under the blood and all that stuff is right out of the pit of hell. Therefore, the Word doesn't need to be an authority in my life. I can basically do what I want to do. It's, the, it's one of the oldest heresies since the foundation of the church. and goes back before that. It's just dressed up differently today. So much so that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, listen to me, He says, if you're on your way to church to worship me, says the temple with your sacrifice, and you realize that your brother has something against you, go get that straight first and then go bring your offering. He's saying there, don't you understand? that in Because in, if you're coming to worship me, I care about where you are with other people. You can't come worship me if you're carrying something in your heart. The Israelites had to go wash their outer clothes. We've got to wash the inner ones. Because that's what God sees. Because worship comes out of the heart. And if my heart is filled with pride, anger, resentment, jealousy, envy, we'll talk about some of those later on. If my heart's filled with those things, that's what my love is being filtered through. That's why Proverbs says, guard your heart with all diligence because out of it flow the issues of life. So we see through the Old Testament, we've seen now through Jesus' words, we see through the Apostle John, that if we want to do something other than just come and sing songs and feel good about ourselves and feel good about God, and which the Lord spoke to me, says that's sentiment. You can either have sentiment or you can have my presence. And we can leave satisfied with that just like the woman would have been satisfied if she came to have her pot filled with water and left with it filled with water. When waiting there for her that day was the opportunity 
to leave with her heart filled with the life of God. It's a trade. Do I want to hold on to my ways and my thinking and the way I want to do things or am I willing to let them go, submit to his word and have him? Because you can't have him if you don't have his word because he and his word are one. You can't reverence him if you don't reverence his word because he and his word are one. So the measure, the testing place, the litmus test of where my heart is towards God is not in how loud I sing, how high I jump, or the emotion I feel on Sunday morning, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. That's fine. But the litmus test of what I really believe about God is what do I do at work? What do I do at home? What do I do in those situations when I, my flesh, my thinking, my justification of the world rises up and the Word of God tells me no? Or the Word of God says do this and I don't want to do this. What authority does that have in my life? Because whatever authority that word has in my life and whatever importance that word has in my life and whatever reverence I have for that word is exactly the importance and the authority and the reverence that I have for him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. Sometimes your word hurts but your hurts are good. Because you're a father that loves us, you will correct us. You'll open our eyes and present us with the truth and then give us the opportunity to respond. I trust, Father, I know that because you're speaking to us now, you're speaking to a people to whom there's still the opportunity and you're calling us, you're drawing us but you're opening our eyes to realize that so often what we've seen of worship and so often what we've seen of you and what we've looked for has been so far below what you have for us. We just come to you right now, Father. We lay aside every preconceived idea. We lay aside our own thinking about it and we just say, Lord, here we are. Teach us. Train us lead us and guide us we don't know what it is fully that you're offering us just like the young girl didn't know what you were offering her but we're saying to you today sir give us that water give us that life give us that presence whatever needs to be looked at examined we trust as you were with her so you will be with us We ask for your grace to face whatever it is we have to face and your strength to make the changes that we may need to make. And we thank you that you live in us by your Spirit to empower us and enable us to make those changes. In Jesus' name, amen.